Thank you, worship team, leading us in the songs of praise and reminding of, of what is uh, eternal and t- lasting, uh, the glory and the reign of Christ. If you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to the book of Isaiah this morning, Isaiah chapter 36 to 37. Um, <clears throat> it's good to see all of you and uh, so humbly, humbled to be in the back in, in the pulpit this morning to uh, proclaim God's word to you. I want to extend again a warm welcome to all our guest visitors. Uh, a big shout out to all you TMU students that are with us. Welcome. Uh, any other TMU students in the house, uh, be sure to go greet your friends, okay? Your fellow classmates. Uh, they're all here. So, all right. Uh, Isaiah 36, and we're just continuing through the, our series through Isaiah. I'm picking it back up in Isaiah. We're going to get to, we're going to finish up through 39 by the end of the year, and then we're going to take a break from Isaiah for a while, uh, and then we'll get to Isaiah 40 to 66 probably after a, a different series in the New Testament book. But in the last uh, couple of weeks, I want to complete Isaiah uh, with us, and it'll probably lead us right, um, now that uh, uh, I see it's, it's probably going to lead right into Christmas uh, time, and so fitting in the sense that Isaiah, this book that has to do, speaks so much about Christ and the salvation that comes, so many prophecies of Christ would kind of lead us right into our Christmas season. Well, and uh, before I forget, I forgot last service, but I uh, hope you'll have a happy Thanksgiving with family and friends. I see some of you are back this week, and maybe you're back for Thanksgiving for good, or if you get trimming, you're going to travel to uh, your hometowns and to be with family and friends during Thanksgiving season. Uh, God be with you as you go, travel mercies, and uh, have a wonderful, blessed, and a thankful Thanksgiving with your family and friends. All right. <clears throat> as we look to the scripture this morning, we're going to look at Isaiah 36. Uh, through 37 this morning. And because we're going to take a, through a, a long section of Scripture, I want to just read this, the text within the, within the sermon this morning. Whenever we preach through passages that are narratives, uh, what we want to do when, when we preach through is really, uh, because it's, it's a story, it's, it's a, the historical record of what's going on, we really just want to tell the story. We want to let the story itself convey the message. Really, if you just tell the story correctly, you tell it accurately, faithful to the text, and fill, it, fill in with just background cross-references, really, you almost don't even need to say anything. It's, it's just kind of obvious when you just tell the story. So hopefully I'm going to tell you the story of Isaiah 36, 37. Really, it's, it's one story that goes from 36, uh, 36 and to the end of 37 together. But we, ha- we have to divide it into um, three messages, actually. I was going to do it into two, but... Uh, Last service decided, made me decide we need to do it in three. So um, we're going to do it in three's messages uh, over the next few weeks. Well, hopefully uh, all of you are feeling okay now. Uh, it's been two weeks since our election. Uh, you kind of, uh, you've, you've, uh, you're calmed down from your anger or you're calmed down from your elation, uh, <clears throat> or whatever it is. And I know that, uh, and I really do hope, especially if you are Christians, you are believers in Jesus Christ, you understand the scriptures teach about, uh, about the kingdoms of this earth, that you are back at a, the happy place, the place of peace that, uh, in Jesus Christ. Two weeks ago, of course, we did have a very shocking election, and since the results were completely unexpected. And I know that some in our country, even today, and perhaps some of you among us today are still up, very upset about the results of our election because an immoral man, uh, a sinful man, has been elected president. And that's, uh, that's, well, that's true. That's true every election, by the way, but, uh, but particularly so. <laughs> but while others in our country, and I would guess some of you too, are, on the other hand, elated about the results. You're excited. And you, you just think that it's a, it's a great victory for the kingdom of Christ. The Christian values, Christian morals are going to be upheld by that outstanding president, you know, our president-elect, President Trump, and the party that he represents. Now, as you have already mentioned, I hope, uh, I trust that you're neither of those places, still upset, still elated. But I can understand. I can understand if you are upset uh, because of all the, the rhetoric, the political rhetoric, and just the clear statements that were made by uh, our, our president-elect. I can understand, though, too, why some of you are elated because uh, uh, the Republican Party has traditionally aligned itself with some of many of the Christian values that are at least visible in our political realm. But if you are still 
angry, if you are still elated because of the election, may I, as your shepherd, suggest that perhaps, I'm not saying you are, perhaps you would ask yourself, have you, have I, put too much trust, too much hope in government and the political sphere? Because if you are a Christian, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are, understand you're, we're part of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ. We're saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Really, when we understand the scriptures, we see what scripture teaches, none of the main realities of our life has changed. Before the election, Jesus was seated on the throne in heaven with all sovereign authority over heaven and earth. And after the election, he's still there, isn't he? Before the election, you were secure in the love of Christ. Nothing could separate you from that. And after the election, I trust that you are still secure in Christ, still confident knowing that your hope, your joy, your peace are found in the fact that you know Jesus Christ, in the person and work of Christ, his finished work on the cross. Nothing in your life that is of great priority, of great value, of lasting value, has changed. And no election will ever change that. Understandably, we may still feel sad. Some of us may still feel happy and elated about the election. But I would encourage us as a congregation, as the people of God, that is not our focus. Let that not be our joy. Let us press on. Let us refocus ourselves on the very thing that is important on the one who's important, the one who our trust is in, that is our Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom, which is advanced through the, his message, the gospel of Jesus Christ. For as Isaiah reminds us very well in Isaiah thirty-three twenty-two, which we looked at a while back, the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. It is he who will save us. Not anyone who sits in any office in this world, in the past, present, or future. Our Savior is the Lord. He's going to be the one who's our source of joy, our source of security, our source of peace, regardless of what happens in our world, in our political system. Well, the question of whom do you trust is the main point or the main lesson from today's text from our pastors today in 36 to 37. In fact, who you trust as, we look, as we're looking at it, is actually a main theme throughout Isaiah. Isaiah has been challenging the people of God uh, through various circumstances and various times. Who do you trust in? Who do you trust in? And, would, and God, through Isaiah, would reprove the Israelites for the many times that they would put their trust in anyone else or everything else besides God, in alliances with other nations, in their military might, in their wisdom, in their strength, in other gods, in other idols. Oftentimes, uh, Judah, as well as the northern kingdom of Israel, had put their trust in everything else but God. God wants Judah now to consider once again, through the circumstances that they're facing, to consider in whom do they trust. Who will the Israelites trust to save them in a day of distress, in a day of rebuke, in a day of rejection? And I would challenge us today, challenge you, in whom do you trust? Now, I know when I say that, you say, well, you just go, oh, in God we trust. <laughs> you're saying that like we well, just read it off the coin, you know? And I'm afraid that many of us say that out of intellectual, you know, our intellectual thing. We just say, oh, in God we trust. But in our emotions, in our actions, in how we talk and how we behave, in the anxieties even of our heart, it's not God who we're trusting. Uh, 
I want us today, as we look at the text and this week, next week, and the week to come, that our trust, we would examine our trust. Who do I trust? And I know we would all, as believers in here, we'd say, our trust is in the Lord, our God. But that, we'll examine how that should manifest when we face days of distress, when we face trials, when we face difficulties, when we face, come across people who will disagree with us, who will challenge us, circumstances that will test us where our faith is at. And that we would affirm in our head and in our heart, not just here but out there, not just in word but in deed, that our trust is in the Lord our God and him alone. So that's where we're going to go this uh, next few weeks. And hopefully uh, it'll encourage you in your trust in the Lord. As we kind of overview our, these next four chapters, 36, 37, 38, and 39, it is a historical transition in the book of Isaiah. It's the midway point between uh, the, first, the first half of Isaiah and the latter half of Isaiah. It, is, it's, it serves as a, um, a, a contrast between what we've seen before. Most of Isaiah that we've studied has been in poetical form. You kind of just go back and look, look at your Bible and see a lot of poetic, poetical form, poetry. But here in 36 through 39, it becomes narrative, historical records, really. In fact, it's such a historical record that almost word for word, nearly identical, what we find here in chapters 36 and 30, 39 are repeated in the historical record of 2 Kings, the book of 2 Kings, in chapters 18 and 19 and 20. And I'm going to put the reference there for you. When we contrast these two chapters, what's, what's the purpose of these two chapters? They're kind of, they serve as a transition. Chapters 36 through 37 are a transition, or sort of a, a consummation, a completion of what we've just seen before in chapters 135, focusing on this Syrian empire. Assyria has been prominent in chapters 1 through 35. It's been the constant threat that's been coming upon the people of God, the, nation, the southern kingdom of Judah, uh, in those early chapters. And now we see the, really the, what takes place, the historical record of what took place, that all those prophecies, uh, why they were given, and the circumstances in which they were given. While the latter two chapters, 38 and 39, which we'll look in, I think, in three weeks from now, will look forward then, will give an explanation of why there's a focus on the Babylonian Empire come chapters 40 through 66. There's going to be, in the future, there's going to be a constant reminder to the, Jude, the people of Judah that they're going to be taken into captivity by, Jude, uh, by Babylon. And why is what ch- chapters 38 explain why. So over the next few weeks then, uh, next two weeks, we're going to examine the historical events surrounding the assault or the siege of Jerusalem and Judah as a nation, as a whole, by the Assyrian king Sennacherib. Sennacherib. So uh, let's just get into the story and let's tell the story. And uh, if um, it uh, took me nearly 45 minutes last, last time just to get through one point, so that's why um, uh, we divided the sermon in half. But if you're taking sermon notes today and next week, if you're not here next week, uh, please uh, listen online. Okay. All right. So, so glad to. Uh, be able to look open the word. You, hopefully you're there. Isaiah chapter 36. We're going to look at, well, really today, just one scene. Okay, one scene from the Assyrian Sea of Jerusalem that caused us to examine in whom do we trust? Whom do you trust? Whom do you trust? All right, let's take a look then. The first scene, as we see here, as in this context of the Sennacherib's assault on the, on the city of Jerusalem and the nation of Judah, is that there is a challenge to the leaders of the nation. There's a challenge to the leaders of the nation in whom do they trust. And uh, leaders of nations, as leaders of organizations, of government, many of you serve as leaders of businesses, leaders of homes. You all understand as a leader, you have a responsibility. How you respond to difficulties and trials is an example, is a lesson, is a pattern for the people who who. Some, who, uh, whom you lead to follow. And so we see that there's a challenge, first and foremost, to the leaders. And this is, though we can apply it first and foremost to leaders even in our day, whether in our nation or even in this church context, 
in, your, in yourself, if you are a leader. But it would, even uh, leaders, since they are to be examples to the people that they lead, uh, these, we can apply these to ourselves as well, even if we're not in a leadership position. But let's take a look at then how are the, is the leader's trust challenged? Before we even get to the leader's, the actual, uh, the specifics of the challenge, we need to look at the setting. And when we get to historical narratives, the setting is so important. In fact, these two verses, uh, I can spend a lot of time just talking about these two verses because there's so much background that we want to bring in from these two verses that kind of just almost practically tell us how to interpret the rest of these two chapters. They open up to us the the spiritual lesson that these two chapters have. We can, t- you know, we can just tell the story, but what's the lesson of the story? The lesson of the story is really indicated by these two chapters, and particularly what we'll find in verse 2. But let's look, look at the setting then. The setting is the, in the 14th year, uh, we'll read in verse 1 and 2, and now in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and seized them. And the king of Assyria sent Rapshakeh from Lachish to Jerusalem to King Hezekiah with a large army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of the fuller's field. Well, uh, first of all, King Hezekiah, we find here, uh, he, among all the Jewish of, of the kings of Judah, he was one of the good kings. Okay? He was one of the good kings. And we find his record in the, in the Chronicles and the Kings uh, recorded for us. But it says here the 14th year, and that year is, uh, in our calendar, is 701 B.C. To give some perspective, just kind of relation to historical events, it was back in 722 B.C., 21 years earlier, that the northern kingdom was taken into captivity by the Assyrian Empire. Both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, along with many of the, of the countries in the Palestine region, had rebelled against the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrian king came in in 722 B.C. and conquered the northern kingdom, that is uh, the nation, the northern king called Israel, and took many of them into captivity, taking them as slaves to, and moved them to Babylon. Now, 21 years later, the Assyrian empire is back. Okay, the empire is back. Uh, under, and they're coming under now the king of king, a different king, King Sennacherib, and they're marching against the southern kingdom of Judah. And we, we know about King Sennacherib very well because not only do we find him, his work record recorded for us in the Bible, but we find archaeological evidence of, of, uh, of Sennacherib's existence. In fact, the most well-known uh, record of Sennacherib's existence is something called Sennacherib's Annals. Sennacherib's Annals. And it's recorded for us. You kind of just do a Wikipedia Google search and you'll find it. It's out there. It's kind of this cool... Uh, if it's. Uh, it's this kind of a, it's a prism. It's a six hexagonal prism. There's actually three copies of it uh, created. They were discovered in different places. Uh, and they were written by, in, they're written in the time of, shortly in the time of Sennacherib. And they're an, an annal of Sennacherib's reign. Six different sides and different conquests, different conquerings, different things that he did. And it's kind of just really neat if you can go and just uh, Google kind of the translation of those, of those uh, cuneiform writing. And you'll see even mentioned there in those annals of King Hezekiah himself and, and what he did with King Hezekiah. And that kind of comes into play. So not only uh, archaeologically, we, but obviously scripturally, we see reference to Sennacherib. And it tells us how Sennacherib uh, the scriptures tell us that Sennacherib came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and seized them. In fact, in his annals and in, the, in, in his record of what he did, it tells us there that he actually he came along and he conquered 46 strong cities of Hezekiah. So he, that cities that were fortified, cities that, were, that had walls or, or, or um, uh, other defenses that, that were designed to withstand enemy armies. He says not only did he take over 46 strong cities, but he also took numerous, he said actually, countless villages that surrounded those cities. And by this time, we see, by the scripture tells us that there were only two fortified cities left, the city of Lachish and the city of Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is the bigger city. It's the capital. But what does Sennacherib do is that he goes, Sennacherib lays siege to Lachish. And that's why he's at Lachish. Lachish, if you will, if you uh, know your geography, or it was actually 30 miles southwest of Jerusalem. Southwest of Jerusalem. That's kind of interesting because 
uh, he's going from north to south, and that's generally just like in Abraham when he traveled to, uh, to the promised land. He went kind of along the Fertile Crescent from, and then heading north and then into south into the promised land. And that's how almost everybody will come to the promised land from Babylon, Assyria, Chalcedon, and those places. And you would think that as he coming north to south, he might get Jerusalem first. But he leaves Jerusalem alone. In fact, he uses a great military strategy and that he takes out, goes southwest, and he divides and kind of sets off Jerusalem apart from any help that they could receive from their major ally, which was Egypt, right? Their major ally. And that road southwest to Lachish would have been the key road from which any Egyptian army, if it was ever going to come, and it wasn't going to come, we'll see later why, was because, so they would divide, and so they divide by taking Lachish first, they could kind of keep Jerusalem by, its, by itself. Sennacherib had already conquered 46 cities of Judah. It's like, imagine if, well, we're not the capital of our nation, but, you know, San Francisco, we thank ourselves as being the capital. We're the, you know, the political capital of our world, you know, in our nation. It's like, if you imagine an army came into the United States of America and destroyed all the major cities, and us and Los Angeles are the only two cities left. Wow. I think as a whole, we wouldn't be like, yeah, we're still alive. I think we'd be like, oh, man, we're next. Right? Because if they, an army could defeat all major cities of the United States, that's a pretty mighty army. And that's what we find here. Judah's all their major cities, except for San Francisco and L.A., Jerusalem and Lachish, are the only ones that are surviving. And Lachish is under siege, and Jerusalem's about to be laid siege with a great army. How big is a great army? Well, later on, we'll find out. In chapter 37, 36, chapter 7, verse 36, we find that the army that God slays, that he will slay, numbered 185,000 strong. At least, there were at least 185,000. We know some escaped because Sennacherib escapes along with that army, with somebody to back to Syria. So 185,000, that's a huge army. Now, we're providing all this background. It's kind of just neat just knowing that there's historical records. Not only do we find it here, but we could go to the, the cross-references in 2 Kings. We can go to the, uh, as, as well as the cross-reference, 2 Chronicles chapter 32 as well. In 2 Kings, actually, there were, the reference there tells us that there are three officials, three Assyrian officials sent. But only one is mentioned here in Isaiah. I guess the most important one because he was the spokesman, the Rapshikah. Now, Rapshika is not a personal name. It's not like he's like, uh, this is not his personal name, but it was a title. Much like when we give titles to uh, Pharaoh. We talk about Pharaoh. We kind of just call him, we say, Pharaoh did this, Pharaoh did this. Well, Pharaoh is a title uh, for the ruler of Egypt. It wasn't his personal name. Or we say Caesar. Caesar did this, Caesar did that. Because, and Rapshika is like that, a, a title. It was a title of a high chief official in the Assyrian army, the Assyrian government. He was probably a military official. Uh, attached to this, uh, this regiment. He was second, perhaps he was second in command uh, because in the parallel, we know there was a tartan with them. A tartan would often be the, the general of the army. And so this uh, Rapshika would have likely been a second or third in command. He acted as the delegation spokesman. But of all these things that we've talked about, there's perhaps no more significant kind of statement, phrase, than what we find at the end of verse 2. And he stood, the Rapshika, stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of the fuller's field. Well, like, when we kind of read that, most of us would just gloss it over. Like, well, I don't know what that means, but uh, I don't know what a, you know, maybe you don't even know what a conduit is. You're not sure what the upper pool might look like. You don't even know who what a fuller is. And so, you know, just kind of, wow, I just don't know any of that stuff. But it doesn't matter. Oh, it doesn't matter too much. But these for the people of Israel, the people of Judah, pardon me, when they saw Rapshikah standing by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of the Fuller's Field, for many of them, if they were alive in, uh, just a few years earlier, they would have reminded them of a very significant event that took place in Judah's history that they would have thought of. For the location where the Rapshikah stood was the very same place that is referenced in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 3. You can turn there with me if you want. Turn to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 3, and look in your Bibles and see. And let's just read that section. 
Uh, then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and your son Shear Jashub, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. It is the same location to a, the, to a T. Now, what is, the significant, what is the significance of this point? And God often does that, right? Often Old Testament event, date, places are mentioned in the New Testament. We think about uh, just some of the things that even Jesus will uh, talk about, places that he goes to are significant, not only Old Testament historically, but will have significance in the, in the far when he returns as well. There are all sorts of connections between the various locations and, uh, in the Bible, whether between Old Testament and New Testament, and this is one of those locations. Now, if you recall the story of Isaiah 7, what happens there? Well, it's a very similar situation, isn't it? The nation of Judah was under attack once more. It was actually it was attacked before. It was under the attack by an alliance between the Aram and the northern kingdom Israel, Syria and Israelites. So there's a Syrian-Israel alliance, and they were, wanted, were lining up, massing their forces to attack Jerusalem and Judah to rem- in order to remove the Judah, king of Judah, King Ahaz at that point, and replace him with a puppet king whom they could control. And the reason why they did that back then was because they were trying to rebel against Assyria, and they wanted Judah to join them in their rebellion to oppose the Assyrian Empire. But you remember the story. So God sends Isaiah to meet with the king, with the king, King Ahaz, at the very place, the, the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of, by the, of the fuller's field. And God then encouraged Ahaz through Isaiah by saying, they planned this, but it's not going to happen. It's not going to succeed. They're not going to happen. I'm telling you, a word is giving him a word of prophecy. This is God himself speaking through the prophet to him saying, it's not going to succeed. And so, you know, to encourage you to know that's not going to succeed, ask for me a sign, right? And we know Isaiah 7, it's Christmas sign, and you know that sign, the sign of the virgin. But what does Ahaz do? We, you know, if you could think back, back to those sermons. If you don't, they're all online. Go listen to them. And you'll find out that Ahaz, despite the fact that God spoke to him directly and said, trust me, I'm going, they're not going to see it. He doesn't trust God. He doesn't. He says, I'm not going to ask for a sign. And it sounded all, you know, hyper-spiritual, like, you know, I'm super humble. I'm too, I'm not going to test the Lord. But it revealed that he really didn't trust God because God told him, ask of me a sign. When God asks you to ask him a sign, ask. Ask for that sign. And so but he, since he didn't, God gave him the sign anyways. And what did Ahaz do, if you recall? Who did he turn to? Assyria. That's right. God, Ahaz, instead of trusting the Lord at the, at the, with, at the, with uh, Aram and Israel at his door, he turned to Assyria. He went to the Assyrian Empire. He gave offerings to the king of Assyria to ask the king of Assyria to come to his help. And the king of Assyria does come to his help later on. But what does God say? What is the result of this? God then told Ahaz that he would be judged and disciplined with the very same nation that he had turned his trust to. The Lord will bring on you, on your people, and on your father's house such days as have never come since the day that Ephraim separated from Judah, the king of Assyria. God told him explicitly, he's going to bring the very king of Assyria to your door as a means of discipline. You look to him for help, I'm going to use him to discipline you. I'm going to use him to show you that you cannot put your trust in man. God loves his people enough to discipline him. And so, and that's why throughout 1 through 35, the rest, we see this constant emphasis that Assyria is coming, Assyria is coming, Assyria is coming. So put your trust in the Lord. So now in our chapter, back to our text today, back to verses 1 to 2 of Isaiah 36. So all that, hopefully it's helpful because the background does give us trade. What then does this tell us? It tells us that here is the very same circ- this very same place, this very same circumstance is taking place. Another nation is at the door. It's Assyria now. And the question stands. A different king, King Hezekiah instead of King Hezekiah, but the people of God still. In whom will you trust? In whom do you trust? Whom are you going to trust this time? Judah is getting a second chance to respond. 
Did they learn the lesson the first time? Will Hezekiah and the people put their trust in the Lord? Certainly, having an army, a large army of 185,000 surrounding you would be a strong, would, be, make it, would make it very difficult, that is, to trust in the Lord. The temptation would be to surrender, to give in, say, yield. But their trust in the Lord would be tested even more by the words that would be spoken. And kind of we know just in battles, you know, there is a physical battles, but even before the physical battle, there is the psychological battle, the battle for morale. That, in fact, is sometimes more powerful for a standing for armies that are going to wage war than the might that you might have, the weapons that you bear, the morale. And so that's what the, the challenge we see in verses 3 through 10. We get to this, and we'll spend the rest of our time in these verses. We see this challenge that the Rapshika uses to assault and attack the faith of the leaders of Israel, King Hezekiah King and his, his government, as well as the people of God. So we, the challenge, we see this challenge to, their, to uh, whom they put their trust in, in verses 3 through 5. The Rapshika wants them to put their trust in Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. And so we'll see. Here's the challenge. We read in verse 3 to 5. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna the scribe, and Joah the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to him. So just as Sennacherib sends a delegation of three, uh, King Hezekiah sends out his delegation of three leaders here too. Verse 4. Then Rapshikah said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, What is this confidence that you have? I say, your counsel and strength for the war are only empty words. Now on whom do you rely that you have rebelled against me? The heart of the Rapshika's challenge lies in verse 5. But throughout this whole, these, this exchange, we see this, there's a one Hebrew word that's repeated over and over. In our English translations, uh, in the NAS, in fact, it's translated different words. But in the Hebrew, it's really the verb for trust. Translate here is rely uh, several times. But everywhere you see rely, trust, even that word confidence in verse 4, is a, it comes from, is built off that word trust. The question here is really of trust. And what the Rapshika questions and asks is in verse 5, on whom do you rely? Some of your translations translate as, in whom do you trust? God uses the Rapshika to cause Israel, to cause Judah to ask, ask and answer the question, in whom do we trust? Whom do we trust in this day of distress and rebuke? Whom do you trust? The Rapshika's challenge to Hezekiah's de- delegation and to Hezekiah himself becomes really a fourfold assault on the faith of King Hezekiah, on his faith as, as well as his fellow leaders. And as we look at this fourfold assault, there's just so much application. We can see that basically, man, really man hasn't changed. The things that people would put their trust in, that they're challenged to put their trust in, uh, really are the same things that we put our trust in today. And I hopefully will show that kind of just a lot of practical application from these texts because these things still reflect how man re- reacts and the things that we put our trust in. So Rapshika wants them to put their trust in in, in Sennacherib instead of other things. And so he attacks the various things that they would put the trust in. So in this challenge, we first and foremost see in verse 6 that he challenges their trust in Egypt. Verse 6. He really, if you will, he wants to tell them that you put your trust in Egypt, this alliance with Egypt, but on the contrary, you are alone. No one's going to come and help you. So put your trust in Sennacherib. Verse 6, we see how this fleshes out. Behold, you rely on the staff of this crushed reed, even on Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who rely on him. Now, good politicians, good military, they understand all the alliances. They know who's on whose side. And they were very much aware that Judah was allied with Egypt. Egypt, really Egypt and Assyria were the, were the two if you will, the two major powers in Egypt, and really didn't even pale in comparison to Assyria, but Egypt was the other power in this region. And they knew that the, that the Israelites put their trust in Egypt. In fact, 
he tells them that uh, he, he challenges them to not put their trust in Egypt because he already knows that Egypt would not come to their help. And I mentioned to you the, those prisms that has contained Sennacherib's annals. There in Sennacherib's annals, it actually records that Sennacherib had already defeated the Egyptian army prior to his assault upon Lachish. That the, the, the Pharaoh had sent his army to defend the, actually defend the Philistines. And in one of those Philistine cities, the arm, Egyptian army was defeated by uh, Sennacherib. And then Sennacherib moved on to Lachish to kind of seal the deal. So that nothing else, though the Egyptian army might have retreated, they would never make uh, an, an, an assault into the land uh, to Judah or to the, that region again. So he knew that they weren't going to come to his help. Pharaoh was basically defeated. He was weak. He was, he was not going to come to the aid. And so with very vivid imagery here, he used this crushed reed. And sometimes a crushed reed, you can just come imagine, you see a reed, it's kind of broken up. And sometimes when it breaks, it can break in a sharp way, right? A sharp break. If you put your hand on the reed, he's like, if you put your trust, you lean on this crushed reed, what will happen to your hand? It will be pierced through by it. Something that you might think you're going to lean upon for help is actually going to hurt you if you put your trust in it, is the picture. Well, the rapture is correct, actually, in, this, in, this, in what he's saying. We know that God himself said this very same thing back in chapters 30 and 31 of Isaiah. We looked at how God had warned Judah about putting their trust in any alliance with Egypt. He had warned them even in uh, chapter 30, verse 5, of how Egypt basically would not be a help. Everyone will be ashamed because of a people who cannot profit them. The people was Egypt, the Egyptians, who are not for help or profit, but for shame and also for reproach. That's what Judah would find as a result of their alliance with Egypt, that they would be ashamed, they would be profitless, they would be helpless uh, to come to the aid of, Judah, of the people of Judah. The Rapshika's challenge here to Hezekiah and to his government really serves also as a warning for us today. He's basically telling them, don't put your trust in other nations. Don't put your trust in any other nation. Don't put your trust in Egypt. And I think for us today, that would be a great encouragement to us. Let us not put our trust in any nation of the earth. Whether it is our great nation of the United States of America, don't put your trust in this nation nor in any nation of this world. Don't put your trust in any nation. I, I know, you know, sometimes Christians talk about, this is a Christian nation. We are a Christian nation. Well, if we were a Christian nation, well, that's maybe now, or maybe it was at some point, but there's no promise this is going to remain a Christian nation. There's only two nations that God, is, that God is, talks about in his word, and that's the nation of Israel, and it's the holy nation of the church of Jesus Christ. Those are the only nations that we really, if we're going to be excited about, we're going to be patriotic for, and those are the nations. Of course, because we live in the United States, I would add the balance that we need to be good earthly citizens of this nation. But let us not trust in government. Let us not put our trust in politics first and foremost. Let us not get excited or angry about who is an officer and who is not. It's just a cycle that goes back and forth. You don't like who's in office now, four years from now, you get a chance to vote him out. And you don't like who's in, in four more years, you get to vote him out again. And if you live long enough, we've seen just, it just kind of like a pendulum, isn't it? I just like, man, it's just a pendulum. They're just taking turns leading. And it just goes back and forth, back and forth. Policies you like now will be changed by the next administrations. And you don't like the policies that you love, that you hate now, will be changed by the next administration. We cannot put, we ought not to put our trust in government or politics. But let me do add, though, with regards to government and politics, that government still is established by God. Romans 13, we understand this. It's a servant of God established to punish those who do evil and to reward those who do good, to, to keep law and order in our land. That's what government exists for, because mankind is sinful and given on our, in our own. We all think, it'd be nice if there's just no governments whatsoever. We'd be at each other's throats. Government exists for a purpose. But nevertheless, let us remember that politics and government is the best. It's only the best that man can do to bring order and change in our world. It's the best that man can do. And we happen to live in a country that has a wonderful system 
Uh, we may debate whether electrical college is the best, whether we should get rid of it or not. But our nation allows us actually to have a voice. We get to vote. We can vote them in, we can vote them out. But nevertheless, though government and politics are means of change for the Christian, for those of us who have faith in Jesus Christ, true lasting change comes from the hand of God. It's God who's going to make effective any lasting change. And so let's put our trust in him. Though the Rabshakeh assaulted and challenged, uh, challenged correctly Hezekiah and Judah's trust in Egypt and in another government, the answer that Rabshakeh wanted them to do, to turn to, to another government, was not the answer. Hezekiah and his government need, and his leaders needed to turn to the Lord. The Rabshakeh then assaults that alternative. In verse 7, he challenges them. The challenge continues. And he challenges their trust in the Lord, knowing this. He, when you go into war, you should know your enemy. And the Rapshka, King Sennacherib, knows who their God is. He, he calls them uh, uh, by the proper name, the Lord our God. He doesn't just say your God. He calls them by the divine name. Trust, you say you trust in the Lord. That would be sometimes translated Jehovah, our God. But he says this, but if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high place and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and is said to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar? The point of this verse is that Rabshakeh is saying that your God is unable to help you. He's not able to help you. He can't even help himself. He's not going to be able to help you. Now, Having said, explained that, Rabshakeh has based this challenge on a complete misunderstanding of Hezekiah's reforms. If you look in 2 Chronicles chapter 29 through 31, those, all those three, chap- three whole chapters are dedicated to the record of how Hezekiah brought about great reform in the worship of God in Israel. Up to that point, the kings before him were evil kings in Judah. They allowed the worship of idols to take place. They allowed all the, the laws of God to be neglected. But Hezekiah brought about complete reform in, in their worship of God. He restored temple worship. He restored the celebration of the feasts, especially Passover. He tore down all the places where, uh, <clears throat> where altars were set up in high places where people would offer worship to the gods, the various gods. Throughout Judah, and really they were just idols. Hezekiah did all that. And it became that, what he did became known to Rabshakeh, to the, the Sennacherib. And so Sennacherib, hearing that, made have misunderstood. Because they thought that maybe the people of God, that what Hezekiah was doing was actually he was tearing down the actual altars and the places of worship of God in those high places. And you can kind of imagine this is because these people were, it was very prevalent in their day that maybe among them, just like people in our days would have thought, well, you know, hey, you know, you can worship here and you can worship there and you can worship there and you can say you're worshiping this God here and you're worshiping that God there and this God there. But you know what? All the gods are really just the same, right? That's, that's just what our world even says today. And you can imagine that in those days, the same was being said. And, this, and the Rapshika misunderstanding, really having that kind of worldview, because they, they had a multitude of gods, it's really, oh, it's just all the same, would have challenged them that, hey, look, Hezekiah actually tore down the altars of God, and your God couldn't even stop it. How are you, how is, if, and if your God could not stop Hezekiah from doing that, how is he going to stop when King Sennacherib comes on your door, who is much infinitely more mighty than the king Hezekiah. He is unable to help you. And this, this lie mixed with half-truths would have appealed to some of Hezekiah's leaders. There are always some in the government that uh, think contrary. They have doubts and they would have been ignorant of the biblical doctrines. They would have been more about, about their, their politics. and using, They were really not spiritual men, not mindful of what Isaiah said. And they would have thought, well, you know, he's got a point. I don't really believe in God anyways. I just give lip service to God. And, they, if, if, and God is unable to keep Hezekiah from doing that. Certainly, he's unable to prevent Sennacherib. 
Maybe he is unable to help. And that's how the enemy works. Sows, dis- sows a doubt among the people of God by mixing lies with truth. Half-truths, really. There's a third assault that uh, the Rapshikah lays upon uh, Hezekiah and his leaders. And that's in verses 8 through 9. And that is, he challenged them in their trust in their military might. Trust in their might. His point really here is that you should trust in Sennacherib because you are weak. You think you're strong, but you're weak. Look at verse 8 through 9 with me. Now, therefore, come, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses, if you are able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse one official of the least of my master's servants and rely on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Jerusalem was surrounded and greatly outnumbered. And Rabshakeh here actually mocks them. He's uh, mocking them. He says, you know, come, make a bargain with my, with my king, King Sennacherib. I will give you, I'll give you even 2,000 horses now. And if, if you're able to even, he's, to put riders on them, and the implication is basically that, that they're so weak, Jerusalem is so weak, that they would even have a difficulty putting 2,000 horses horse riders. And you know, these, these are people, you know, people who ride horses would have to be skilled people. It's not like everybody, you know, how many, unless you've been raised with horses and horses were not, uh, you know, inexpensive animals, you wouldn't, you would have to be skilled. And they, they didn't have such kind of men at their resources. But he said, well, if you were able to put men who could ride them, if I gave you 2000 horses, you still would not be able to resist. He doesn't say Sennacherib. You wouldn't be able to resist the little corporal that's in our army, the least of our military leaders. You wouldn't be able to resist him. How can you then turn to Egypt? And the reason why, of course, Israel turned to Egypt was because Egypt was known for their military might. They were known for their chariots, right? Egypt's known for their chariots, and uh, we see it always in, as well as their horsemen, those chariots that were devastating weapons. They could run over people. They were like the... the um, and those, uh, those uh, like modern-day tanks, you know, they could fire weapons from a side. They can run over people. They can go all over. They're fast. Um, they were pretty devastating weapons in those days. And their trust, and he, and Rapshka knew that Judah was trusting in Egypt for that military might. He was challenging them to remind them that the fact is you guys are weak. You don't have any power to resist me. You know, from a human standpoint, we understand why people put their trust in military might. We understand in our world that physical and military might is what rules the world. If you have nuclear weapons in our world, if you're a nation that has nuclear weapons, you get a seat at the table. You get a say. Because if you can destroy, launch with one push of a button and destroy uh, the world a couple times over, people will have to talk with you. And we understand how that works. That's why there are bullies in our world. But even might and strength has its limits. Psalm thirty-three, sixteen tells us, the word of God says, the king is not saved by a mighty army. It sure is nice to have a mighty army, but the king is not saved by that. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. It sure is nice. If you're going to warrior, you're going to find battle to have some strength. But God's word specifically says, that the king nor the warrior is delivered by their might nor their strength. Who then is the king and the warrior delivered by, according to God's word? Two verses down. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope for his loving kindness, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. It is the Lord God, isn't it, brothers and sisters? It's God's might, because God is mightier than any human might or strength, an army or weapon. God is the one who is able to defend you and deliver you. And though the Rapshka is correct in pointing out to Hezekiah and his leaders that, hey, don't put your trust in might because you are weak. That is true for Hezekiah. And that's true for you and me. Let us not put our trust and trust in our strength and our might and even in our knowledge, our wisdom, things that we're strong and we're good at in our human ability. 
Our strength, our power comes from the Lord alone. It is he who will deliver us. The last and final attack focuses again on Hezekiah and his fellow leaders' trust in the Lord. It's kind of the Lord part two. For the Israelites, for the people of Judah, they, they would have in their head known to put their trust in the Lord. It's kind of something they were all raised up with. And even if they were not putting their trust in God, but when in face of difficulty, they may have, they may would remember those things they were taught and may return. And so Sennacherib, and, uh, through rap, the Rapshika, assaults their trust in the Lord once again. And this time, instead of saying that he's unable to help you, he really wants to tell them that in reality, the Lord God is against you. So don't bother putting your trust in him. Verse 10, have I now come up without the Lord's approval against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Wow. You know, if you're, a, you know, if you heard this and you're, you're the Hezekiah, you're the people that's like, man, God himself is against us to destroy us. He not only told us and that, and we were told him to come and uh, come in against this land and destroy it, but then he actually, he, to, he didn't, uh, he didn't enable him to do it, but he told him to do it. And if this is actually true, then there's nothing that we, as the people of God, can do to resist God's power. But what the Rapshika says here actually wasn't true. It sure sounds true. And if you had been, if just if you compare it with what was said already, taught in, in various places in, through chapter 1 through verse 30 to chapter 35, it has a lot of tr- semi-truths in there. There are half-truths. Yes, God had promised to use Assyria to discipline Judah, Right? We already saw that in, in, Assyria, in Isaiah chapter 7. Yes, God had promised that Assyria would plunder the cities of Judah. He did that in chapter 10, verse 6. But he did not promise that Judah would be destroyed at the hands of Assyria. Instead, what did he promise? The very opposite. Assyria would be the one that is destroyed but not by Judah, but by the Lord. Isaiah 14, 25, in, in that, uh, that prophecy against the nation of Assyria, or actually in the context of the, the oracle against Babylon, the Lord of hosts has sworn to break Assyria in my land, and I will trample him on my mountains, is the promise. God promised that he would break the yoke of Assyria. He would destroy the, the Assyrian king, but he would not destroy him until he arrives in his land, the promised land. And that's exactly what happens. And we'll, that's what exactly what we'll see will happen. Nevertheless, though we see now, we understand the truth, the Rapshka's words here, skillfully woven, it's almost like he, was, he had taken a lesson from Satan himself, how to mix truth with error, you know, to just enough to cause the people of God to doubt we see that that's really just how the enemy works. And that's how the enemy works to cause us to doubt our trust in the Lord. He sows enough truth with lies to make you question the Lord. Maybe many of you out here, just kind of, just kind of as we close up here, just bring it to our day. Many of you today are, I know we're not at a war in any kind of visible sense, though there are kind of a lot of, uh, behind the scenes, war is always going on. But we could apply it to maybe situations in your life today where you are really being assaulted. You're going through trials. You're going through some things that are causing you distress. You're at maybe being rebuked, cause, being disciplined by the Lord. You're actually rejected by people. Different or other various trials and, and afflictions that may be going on in your life. And the enemy will tell you these same lies. God will allow these things to happen so that we would be challenged to put our trust in whom? In the Lord. But the enemy will come and he will tell you that you're on your own. You're on your own. No one's going to help you. No one cares about you. He'll come along, he'll tell you that 
he's actually unable to help you. Remember how long you prayed for that request? Has he answered it yet? No. He really is unable to help you. He's not coming. He comes along and tells you, the Lord is against you, don't you know? You're a sinner and he hates you. He hates you. How could you disappoint him like that? He knows what you did. He's actually against you right now. He's disciplining you. He's not going to help you through this. The enemy will come along. He'll tell you that not only is he against you, not only that you're on your own, not only that you're weak, he'll tell you, don't put your trust in the Lord. Don't put your trust in the Lord. But these are all truths mixed with lies that the enemy sows. And you and I believe them sometimes, don't we? We do. Or maybe it's just me. Intellectually, we know. Oh, yes, I I trust in the Lord. When the trials come and the whispers come, we're angry. We're distraught. I caught myself this week being distraught. We're depressed. But these are simply a reflection that we've forgotten in whom we trust, brothers and sisters. We've forgotten who is on the throne. We've forgotten who is in control of our destiny. We've forgotten whose love for us can never be separated from us. He has chosen you from eternity past. He will never forsake nor leave us, no matter what you do. You can put your trust in him. For the leaders of Israel, for the people of God, that was their test. Because the, as, this, as God brought the Assyrians at their door and the Rapshika there stood at the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the Fuller's Field. A place of choosing. A place of examination. Brothers, sisters, if you are in that place, may you ask yourself, in whom do I trust? And we'll see in the passages to come, in the verses to come. Like Hezekiah, like the people of God, let our trust be in the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this time in your word. Lord, I know that in this room, there are a good number of us going through trials. And Lord, we have believed. We have believed the lies that the enemy has sown. truths mixed with lies that have caused us to doubt in your power, to doubt in your sovereign control, to doubt in your, our security in your love. And it's made us anxious. It's made us distressed. It's made us doubt you. And some of us, it has endangered us to the point of us falling away Oh, Lord, we pray that your word would remind us that you are the one in whom we trust, that you are the Lord God alone, that there's none other in this world, no gods, no idols, no man or woman or leaders of this world, they can take you off your throne. You control the kings of this world. You control the destiny of this world. So Lord, you control each and every one of our lives, each and every one of our destinies. And so Father, we thank you 
that we can put our trust in you. And we're reminded even now as we reflect upon how you are in control, that you've already conquered the greatest affliction in our life, the affliction of sin through the sending of your son to die on on the cross in place of us. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for that reminder that if you have defeated the greatest affliction in our life, the greatest bondage in our life, the greatest uh, danger in our life, Lord, there is no affliction, no trial, no bondage in our life that you cannot defeat and deliver us from because you've already defeated us from sin in Christ. And you've given us your son. Help us to look to your son in the days ahead. Help us to put our trust in him. Help us not put our trust in government and politics, not put our trust in politics. Help us guard us from, put, from doubting your ability nor your willingness to help and deliver us. For Father, we know that you are with us and you are for us because you've given us your son. We thank you for Jesus. And in his name we pray, amen and amen.